Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Alert, brought to you by the Institute of Alcohol Studies. On this month's podcast, we have a double header. We spoke to Robert Stebbings, the policy and communications lead at charity ADFAM, about their new report, State of the Family Support Sector. First, though, we spoke to the economist Nicholas Woolley from the consultancy Frontier Economics. The group recently published a report on the economic costs of preventable cancers, making front-page news in The Guardian twice in a week. We asked Nicholas what the report looked at and the headline findings. We do lots of work um, in health and social care, uh, including in cancer. And we were struck by the results of some previous research by Cancer Research UK, which shows that four in 10 cancers are preventable. Uh, This seemed to us to be a really significant proportion uh, and pretty important for health policy. So we set ourselves the task of understanding the economic and societal costs of these preventable cancers, both today and in the future. Uh, And we explored a range of costs, including costs to individuals, so due to lost years of life or lost quality of life, costs to the NHS and social care due to treatment costs, costs to family and carers due to the informal care burden that can uh, come about due to cancer, uh, and costs to the wider economy due to lost productivity. Um, And overall, we found that in 2023, uh, there are likely to be around 184,000 preventable cancers, and these will generate, we estimate, costs of 78 billion which is around three and a half percent of GDP. Worth saying maybe that our 78 billion cost estimate includes different types of costs. uh, And some of those are financial. So for example, costs to the NHS to pay for treatment and medication for cancer patients. Uh, But some of those costs are non-financial. So for example, the cost to family and carers Uh, in terms of the informal care burden uh, supporting someone with cancer. Uh, Those aren't a financial cost, but they're nevertheless an important economic cost. And we've tried to be clear in our report uh, how those different types of cost have been added together. And therefore, uh, you you can see the breakdown of of those different types of costs in the the full detail in the report. And how do those costs break down? You, You mentioned they break down in terms of individual costs, costs to the NHS, what what is the specific amount that you found those um, costs break down into? Yeah, so our seventy eight billion estimate uh, breaks down uh, roughly as as follows. So about thirty billion of that is the cost to individuals in lost quality of life, uh, and within that, actually, around eighty to ninety percent of that is due to mortality. So it's due to premature death, uh, and the remainder is uh, poorer quality of life. For, for individuals who, who don't die from cancer, but, but nevertheless suffer from cancer for a, a period before recovery. So that's 30 billion to individuals. There's then 40 billion, which is the largest single category, uh, which is the cost to the economy. Uh, and again, mostly that's driven by premature deaths. Uh, and this is a combination of paid work and unpaid work which is which is lost as a result of of those lives being lost. Uh, then the remaining eight billion out of our seventy eight billion total is costs to the NHS, 
costs to social care and the cost to family and carers due to informal care burdens. It's interesting when we talk about numbers in the billions, and I think people, including me, struggle to understand what that really means. And you made it a little bit clearer by talking about it being 3.5% of, of GDP. What I, I'm not sure if you'll know this, but what, what's the how much do we spend on the NHS in terms of GDP? So uh, the, the annual spend on, on the NHS is about twice that. So in recent years, it's uh, it's been a little bit higher, actually, due to COVID. So there's been a bit of a sort of spike in, in health spending, uh, as you can probably imagine, um, due to due to COVID. But but around 150 billion or, or so is maybe not a bad uh, benchmark for for spending on the NHS. So around double our 78 billion number. Although maybe worth mentioning, just, just to be clear, that 78 billion number is the costs due to new preventable cancers in 2023. Um, but not all of those costs occur straight away. So um, we estimated that those costs would, uh, would would occur over a period of about eight to 10 years. So as a result of new cases this year, that 78 billion over the, the next eight to 10 years would, would occur. But bear in mind, actually, then in 2024, you have another 184,000 or however many preventable cancers, and they also have 78 billion or, or so in, in costs starting next year. So the timing is a little bit, bit tricky. So it's not directly comparable, but but around half the cost of, of the annual NHS budget maybe gives you an idea. Yeah, that definitely helps sort of understand the the, the number a little bit better. Um, there was another number in the report, um, which sort of follows on from what you were just saying about this, I guess, delay, that uh, it says that between 2023 and 2040, um, the cumulative costs will be 1.26 trillion. So is that again that that delayed? So each each of those years, the cumulative cost of uh, preventable cancers is 1.26 trillion. So so each year the cost would be around. Would, would, so start at 78 billion. Uh, that's based on 184,000 preventable cancers this year. We forecast that that number of preventable cancers would increase to around 220,000 by 2040, and therefore the costs would go up as well from that 78 billion. And if you add up those 78 billion rising to 80, 90 billion over those those years from 2023 to 2040, that in total adds up to to, to that big over a trillion figure. Not going to try and understand what that number means, really, but very big numbers. <laughs> okay, with that, which cancers did your um, report cover, and which cancers have the have the highest associated economic costs? So our report focused on four cancers in detail, and those were lung, bowel, melanoma, and breast. And we picked those four cancers because they account for the largest number of preventable cancer cases. Uh, and between them, just over half of the 184,000 in 2023 would be due to one of those four. And they are the most common uh, due to a combination of how prevalent the cancer is in general. So lung and breast cancer, for example, very, very, uh, very, very common but secondly also how preventable that cancer is so in the case of melanoma it isn't the most prevalent but a very high proportion is preventable if you can avoid uh, exposure to, to uv uh, uv sun uh, in the case of breast a smaller proportion is preventable i think it's just under a quarter 
but it's a very prevalent type of cancer overall. So different reasons for the inclusion of, of those, but uh, but those four collectively are, are the largest number. Uh, we did look at all, all other cancers uh, as a group as well, but, but didn't get into the detail of those. Uh, and just to give you an idea, the cost per case uh, is around sort of several hundreds of thousands of pounds. So that's 78 billion when you look at an individual uh, case of cancer. Um, in the few hundred thousands and lung cancer is the highest at around six hundred thousand pounds per case in terms of attributing costs to individual cases where do you have you and in terms of the methodology of your paper where do you get those costs from we we built up uh, the evidence base for for those different cost categories slightly differently uh, and we tried to triangulate quite a broad uh, broad evidence base as far as we could. So, for example, uh, looking at the, the cost to individuals, we were using NHS data on survival rates and mortality to understand the years of life lost as a result of cancer cases. So how many people with a, a case of lung cancer will, will die and how long might we have expected them to live absent that case of lung cancer to understand the years of life lost. Uh, and we then uh, value that um, based on uh, other national statistics, public data around what we know about working habits. So whether those people were likely to be in work, how much they were likely to earn, which is a, a measure of their productivity or their contribution to the economy. Uh, and also, if they're not in work, whether they might be doing unpaid work, so volunteering or family uh, you know, childcare, which, uh, which, which still has a societal value. And although it's not a, a direct contribution sort of financially, if you like, it's a little bit less visible. But nevertheless, we wanted to, to capture that cost. So that's one example for, for, for each of those four categories of cost. We use slightly different combinations of, of publicly available data, existing academic literature as well to, to draw on what other people have already done in, in this space. Interesting. You kind of touch on the sort of tangibility of uh, attributing costs and some of these costs are more and less tangible that you that you include in the report and so the cost of the healthcare system very clear tangible cost loss of productivity i think is one that people often struggle with a little bit and one of the, the criticisms i've seen is that actually people dying prematurely saves money because you don't have to give them a state pension then uh, or pay for healthcare associated with illness and older age how would how would you respond to those sorts of those sorts of criticisms? Yes, so it's um so it's a tricky one, and uh, it, it's worth saying that even even within within the, the types of costs you mentioned there, there are, there are different um, different sort of categories. So so uh, sort of welfare pay, payments, for example, and payments that are that are made to individuals in older age, state age pension or disability benefits, for example, we wouldn't. In, have included those in our analysis because as an economist we think of those as transfers so they're a cost to the government but then they're a benefit of the same size to the people who receive those so there isn't an overall societal cost to those they're just a transfer from from government to to individuals albeit they might be very significant transfers and therefore from a, a government perspective, they're quite important to understand the size of those. So, so I, I wouldn't, wouldn't disregard them totally. 
when you think about costs of, of productivity, actually, this is an area where uh, government is increasingly interested. Um, you, you'll have probably seen lots of focus on, uh, on, on growth and how we can boost the economy. And so understanding uh, the impact of uh, preventable cancer in this case on people withdrawing from the labour market, either because of sickness and long term sickness absences or sadly premature death. Actually, those are the sorts of considerations which which are increasingly getting attention from from government and policymakers. Specifically on the, on the point of NHS, NHS costs, which you also mentioned, there is a bit of a trade-off there that, um, as you say, if you, uh, if you intervene and, uh, and stop someone from, from dying, bluntly, who otherwise might have died, they then live longer and, and might live with longer-term conditions which are, are costly. There is a bit of a trade-off there, but I think the NHS works on the principle that if if someone turns up in an ambulance with a, a life threatening condition, you don't sort of weigh, weigh up that sort of cost and benefit too too starkly. Um, and certainly, end of life costs, as an aside, uh, the end of life costs associated with the last few years of of someone's life, actually delaying those by ten years or fifteen years by preventing a case of cancer actually doesn't change the total quantum of cost. It just moves the timing of it. You still incur that cost. It just pushes it back a little bit later than than it otherwise would um, would, would uh, when it would occur. I need to pander more to um, IS's audience here because I realise we're focusing very much on uh, your report more generally, but going a little bit deeper in terms of the alcohol-related preventable cancers, how many deaths um, are associated with preventable cancers caused by alcohol and what were the economic costs that you guys found? Yeah, so that, that's a little bit tricky uh, because our analysis looked from the perspective of different cancers rather than from the perspective of different risk factors such as alcohol or smoking or obesity. Uh, and each cancer type uh, and, and the analysis we did was based on 30, around 30 cancers in in total. Uh, each cancer type has a different proportion, which is due to each risk factor. And so if you take alcohol, for example, uh, I think around 8% of all breast cancer cases, and then 6% of bowel cancer cases are due to alcohol. But for some other less common can cancers like oral cancer and pharynx cancer, the proportion is over 30%. Across all cancers, the evidence suggests that 3.3% of all cancers are due to alcohol. And that's around 7% of the preventable cancers that we looked at in this study. Uh, and this isn't 100% accurate, but to your question of, of the costs associated with those, you might therefore extrapolate from those figures and you might estimate that of our 184,000 preventable cancer cases, around 7% are due to alcohol, which would be around 13,000 cancers in 2023 due to alcohol. And of our 78 billion cost estimate, again, around 7% being due to alcohol would be around 5.5 billion. And that's a little imperfect because, as I say, it varies from cancer type to cancer type. And, and we didn't quite do the analysis in that way. But but that's quite a good guide. It's interesting you focus on sort of accuracy. Um, how accurate are the findings of the report in general? And are they likely to be an over or underestimate? Really good question. Our 
estimates are based on modeling and bringing together various different types of, of data and evidence. And inevitably, that evidence is better in some areas than others, and therefore various assumptions are required in our modeling. But because of that, we tend to err on the side of caution and we tend to be conservative in our estimates. So where we're not confident of a of a cost or there's a range of uncertainty, we tend to err on the side of, of underestimating or not including certain types of costs. On that basis, if anything, our estimate of 78 billion is likely to be a slight underestimate. But we're confident enough based on triangulating with other bits of evidence that we've seen that these are reasonable estimates. So these findings are also based, and you make it very clear in your report, on there being no further policy interventions to reduce these preventable cases, which clearly means that governments um, and policymakers can do something to prevent these deaths and associated costs. And it's something that IAS pushes for and lots of people listening push for. And one of the next steps of your report is is about listing interventions that could be used to reduce this harm. What do you think the government needs to change in, in order to reduce these cases? Yes, that's right. These estimates are a bit of a snapshot based on the world as it exists today. But we know that things can change over time and and we would argue potentially should change in response to these sorts of these sorts of findings. Uh, and we see that some risk factors are already changing, actually, uh, some for the better. So exposure to the sun and uh, risks of smoking are now much better understood than they were uh, were in, in the past. And therefore, th those rates have decreased over time. And over the very long term, that would impact on the numbers that, that we've modelled here. Some risk factors are, are probably changing for the worse. Uh, so if you think about poor diet and individuals living with obesity, those are probably going in the wrong direction. Uh, and I think uh, with alcohol, the current trend is a decrease, but this has fluctuated a bit over, over the decades. And so it's a bit more of a complicated picture. Um, in terms of government intervention, to simplify it, there are probably three broad categories. So there are information campaigns, regulatory interventions, financial incentives. Uh, in terms of information campaigns, raising awareness of harm so people can choose to live more healthy lifestyles, uh, for example, with better labelling on alcohol. Thinking about regulatory interventions, that could be restricting availability. So the age of the buyer or the locations and hours where uh, where alcohol or, or other uh, products are, are available. In terms of financial incentives, uh, increasing taxes or setting minimum prices has been shown to, to be valuable and effective in, in some cases already. But overall, my view is we, we likely need a mix of these sorts of interventions if we're going to help people to be more healthy and to prevent some of these cases of cancer. Now to Robert Stebbings. We asked him what the charity ADFAM does and discussed their latest report. So ADFAM, we're a national charity. We represent and advocate for families affected by substance use, so whether that's someone else's uh, drinking or, or drug use. Um, we estimate that 5 million adults in Great Britain are currently ne negatively affected by someone else's substance use. So obviously this is a huge number of people and we really feel that it doesn't get the recognition that it deserves, both in terms of um, support, public awareness and, and practice, 
Uh, so as well as delivering support um, and providing information and guidance to family members, we also campaign and, and, and try and raise awareness of the um, effects of this issue, um, which, which really can be um, devastating and, and massive for family members. I think that's sort of clearly explained by the report that you came out with recently. Um, could you explain a little bit about the report? So it's an update of a 2019 report, if I'm correct. What was the aim of the report and how did it collate information? Exactly, yeah. So um, essentially the, the report was um, aimed to provide a, a snapshot of current practice in relation to family support. So essentially what's available for families, what's being delivered, um, how services are, are getting on in terms of funding and capacity, but also what it's like to, to work in the sector, what are the key issues that, that services are seeing and, and, and families are facing. So the, the data was um, collected. We, we ran um, a detailed online survey specifically for, for those working in services that provide support to families affected by substance use. And we also ran some um, consultation events as well with um, with practitioners working in the sector, giving us the chance to kind of go a little bit deeper into some of the key issues. Over 100 people working in the sector participated in the um, in the consultation. We don't claim it to be necessarily representative of the family support sector as a whole, but given the large number of uh, respondents and we had quite a good geographical spread as well, and the fact that those responses chime with the stories relayed to us by family members as well, um, as well as practitioners and sector organisations, you know, we're confident that the report accurately represents the views of, of many people working in the sector in, in the UK. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, the last report we did was 2019, and, and it's something we try and do every three to four years. Um, but yeah, since the last one in 2019, obviously lots has changed since then. We've had the the pandemic, uh, the cost of living crisis, but also politically the new um, government drugs strategy, and the um, the changes that have come about from that, and also you know three um, prime ministers as well. So it says you know lots to lots to pick up on, lots to lots to get our teeth into within the report. What were the headline findings of the report? You focused there on the drug strategy. I assume that that has potentially made quite a big impact in in the, uh, the sort of day to day practices of um, service providers, or maybe not. Um, what were the headline findings? So I think three key findings that, um, that that we came out with. So, so yeah, as you mentioned, firstly, in terms of the, the drug strategy. So we found that despite significant additional investment going into the drug and alcohol sector off the back of the drug strategy, we found from this um, study that on the whole, this the extra funding really wasn't filtering through to family support. Um, so of the respondents to the survey, only 8% were aware that their organisation had received um, additional money to use for family and carer work. Um, so this kind of very much demonstrating that um, despite additional funding coming into the sector, family support wasn't quite um, benefiting from that. Um, secondly, um, what we found was that practitioners and those working in the sector very much um, witnessed and reported an increase in their workload. Um, off the back of an increase in family members seeking support. So 90% of um, respondents reported an increase in their workload in the in the latest survey. So that's up um, 10% from, from the last one in, in, in 2019. So, so it's a kind of upward trajectory there. And then, so thirdly, in, in addition to the um, number of cases, the weight of those cases are becoming heavier and, and more complex. 
Um, so people affected by substance use and their family members are dealing with and struggling with more complex issues, whether that's parental conflict, domestic abuse, mental health, homelessness. And this is making it harder and more complicated for, for practitioners to, to support family members. And I think overall, there's just very much uh, an unmet need. Um, on average, participants estimated that only 21% of the people in substance-related treatment in their area had a family member receiving any kind of support. And this leaves a huge um, known and reachable population of carers and family members who are currently not receiving support. Why do you think there is a lack of funding? I mean, treatment services often or forever really have had issues with um, a lack of funding with the sort of funding for treatment services or, or services, sorry, that support families and carers. I get that there's a sort of, there's another, there's another sort of barrier that they're not the ones um, with the, the substance use um, issue themselves. Is it a lack of appreciation of the impact of family on families and the benefit that their support can provide that is causing a lack of funding, or is it simply sort of indicative of what I was saying about a lack of funding across the treatment system uh, that we've always had? Yeah, I think I think it's very difficult. I mean, family support has um, experienced cuts to funding over many years. You know, during the austerity years, when when budgets were being cut and commissioners and services were having to um, do more but work with less. Um, it was often the case that that family support was was one of the first things to go and, and be cut. And the drug strategy was seen as a really big opportunity for the sector due to, you know, after so many years of, of cuts, you know, an, an influx of additional funds. And, you know, undeniably, it has been incredibly positive. Um, and lots of, you know, substance use services have been able to increase their capacity and increase what they're able to do. However, due to the kind of specificity of the funding and where it's being targeted and, and what the outcomes are, so specifically around treatment and other aspects like homelessness, it is becoming evident that the funding is just isn't filtering through to, to family support. You mentioned the pandemic earlier. What sort of impact has the pandemic had on services geared towards families and how has that trickled on? I know I'm not the person that's going to say that we're out of the the COVID-19 pandemic yet necessarily, but there's this, um, especially with the impact on um, drinking patterns, um, that's not gone back to pre-pandemic levels, hopefully yet, hopefully it will do, but has that sort of trickled on in terms of the um, impact on families and carers as well? Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting. So on one hand, it's it's it has the the pandemic did mean that that services changed their approach and and lots of them moved to providing online support. So over ninety percent of the respondents to our survey reported that their service had provided online support during the pandemic, and eighty eighty seven percent had continued to do so um, once. Obviously, like you said, we're not out of COVID, but like once lockdown um, restrictions, et cetera, had ended, they, they kind of continued to offer online support as well as in-person support. So it's changed um, changed in that sense. But certainly in terms of the effects on family members, you know, during the pandemic and, and now um, family members are, are continuing to kind of feel the effects of that pandemic. And, and um, I mentioned earlier about the the complexity of of, of, of of what people were going through and what practitioners were having to to deal with in working with those family members that that's that's very much been been evident off the back of the pandemic and also as well the cost of living crisis as well unsurprisingly has exacerbated what what families are going through you know they were already dealing with and this is the same for the pandemic you know already dealing with 
a really challenging, tough situation. And, and these, this has just made it so much harder for them. And it's added, added something, it's, it's, it's added further kind of complexity to, to what they were already dealing with. What is ADFAM calling for um, policymakers to consider and, and hopefully implement? And what would be the sort of best case scenario that ADFAM could hope for? So best case scenario, I mean, we want to see family support funded across the board and available across the board so that regardless of where you live, um, regardless of uh, what local authority and what your postcode is, dedicated family support is available to you free of charge. Obviously, we're a long way from that at the moment. Um, and, you know, funding is tight. Um, there are a lot of competing demands. You know, we're aware of that. But there just clearly is a huge unmet need. And we're convinced that if money is there, um, the family support sector will rise to the challenge and, and provide that that vital support to so many family members to to really help them um, deal with the, the practical implications of, of having a family member with a substance use problem, but also deal with the emotional effects and, and um, effects on people's well-being. It's, it's, family support is proven to, um, to help with that and, and it really is important that, that it is funded properly and, and available. That is all for this month. Thank you for listening and we hope you can join us in next month's podcast.